I was uh, talking to a friend of mine the other day, and he's probably going to hear this. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and he's, uh, he's working from home, you know, because that's what life is. I guess. And he was telling me that he recently started rewatching The Sopranos. And anyone who knows me or has been listening to this show knows that I think The Sopranos is the greatest television show that we will ever have. Because it is. And because it was kind of filmed in my backyard. So he happens to live in New Jersey. And he's telling me that he's been watching it while he's working, which doesn't make any sense. But um, he then goes on to say that he's been watching like eight, nine, ten episodes a day. And I kind of gave him some shit. He's one of my best friends. I love you, bro. Uh, But to me, that's fucking crazy. When I'm doing anything, like, you know, I'll keep it reading specific, right? If I'm reading... Um, after like, you know, if I can get a solid 30 uninterrupted minutes in, my mind starts to wander and, you know, it's the classic, you know, reading a couple of pages, then stopping and thinking, oh fuck, what the, what did I just read? Um, I don't know who any of the writers, there were a lot of writers on the Sopranos, um, so much so that they are now doing their own podcast. If you haven't heard it, check it out. It's dope. Um, it's called Talking Sopranos. It's, it's with Michael Imperioli and Steve Shrippa. Um, And they're bringing on the writers. Honest, I would love... That would be a dream. If I can get some of the writers from The Sopranos on this show, that would be fucking insane. Um, you know, But they bring on writers and they bring on actors and all these things. I have no idea how long it takes to write a te- one episode of a television show. I don't know. I also don't know how many people are involved with that process. You know, you know, there's always the credit, you know, written by so-and-so. But is that, you know, who else is part of that? Maybe it's just the one person. I don't know. If I ever talk to one of these people, you know, this is something I'll ask them. And sorry if it's loud. There's construction everywhere. Um, but I imagine a lot of work goes into writing an episode of or went into writing an episode of The Sopranos. Yeah. You're talking about the best of the best producing the best work we'll ever know. Yeah. Again, other things about The Sopranos made it a very good show. The acting. <laughs> um, but the writing, man, if you go back, it's one of the funniest shows ever. And they talk about this in the Talk The Sopranos podcast. But man, it's the dialogue, the characters, everything about that show was just fucking perfect. So he's telling me he's watching like eight, nine episodes in a day. And I mean, there's no way, you know, the ter- when, when the term binge watching became coined, I don't know, when was that? Like 2016, 15? It was kind of like a little bit before all those couples started wearing, uh, the that Netflix and chill costume at Halloween, you know, yeah, and binge watching. I mean, just the word binge is fucking gross. Um, I've always, I went through a little bit. Listen, I'm not all right. 
I'm going to call it what I will call it, and then you decide what you want to call it. Um, I would have called it a bit of a depression. Um, I wa- you know, wasn't, listen, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to end it all. But like around like age 20, 21, no, no, I'm sorry, a little later, 21, 22-ish, 23, um, I went through like a bad breakup, a real bad breakup, and, you know, to a girl I thought I was getting, you know, you're 22 but it fucked me up and i that's when i watched the sopranos for the first time and my buddy chris shout out chris uh gave me the box set on dvd and i would watch that shit for hours and what would happen to me is you know at the end of like the second episode you know, if you're, you know, if when you're sitting in a bedroom with the lights off, you know, and it's 3 p.m. in the afternoon, you know, what, that's what you do. You just, you, you dive into the next one. Some people might have the attention span, but what was happening to me was I wasn't paying attention, right? So my buddy tells me he's working from home. He's sitting on a computer, probably in pajamas <laughs> and Simpsons pajamas and he says he's watching The Sopranos, and I'm thinking, how? And he's like, it's you know, it's kind of on in the background. And I didn't want to dig in further, but to me, you're not watching it, right? Obviously, um, how can you read a book? You know, I've been victim to it too. You know, I used to read books in public, but not wear headphones, and. Dude, there's no. I must have read entire novels and not have paid any attention. Instead, I was paying attention to some girl, you know, complaining that her boyfriend didn't want to go to brunch, or like some dude complaining that his girlfriend wanted to go to brunch. These things were in my head during the time when what I was reading should have been in my head. And like, so when I went to rewatch The Sopranos for a second, third, and fourth time, uh, I was cognizant of just like one episode treat it like a little tasty morsel um and digest as much of it as you can you know i I, there were times where yeah i I wanted to watch the next episode but i'm like fuck it you obviously already know what happens so you don't need to watch it and also you know what's the purpose you know if, if i'm trying to make a conscious decision to you know take in this art form i i don't need to rush it right now um so that gets me thinking, you know, it's just you know, things to think about, right? Even when you're in conversation, your mind's drifting off and to check back in, take it in, um, you know, and I don't know, to cut out that word binge. It's just, I fuck, I, I can't, this guy just totally cut me off. Thanks, bruh. Um, I can't stand it. It's just, and here's another guy I know. What's up, guy? Um, I can't stand it. It's just that that there's I, I don't see any you know binge watching something is it's that's not a positive thing to me. You know I don't think any writer is stoked when people are like it's a known fact that people are just blasting through you know episodes that you wrote that you spent a lot of time. I mean maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they don't give a shit. Maybe the you know. I'd imagine the writers of Big Bang Theory don't really fucking care at this point. Yeah. Or maybe they do. I don't know. 
but the good but the good thing about this podcast is um I can keep it short so you can all blast through it. Um thanks again. Check it out at writing friction Instagram Twitter. Um I'm gonna keep booking authors as long as they keep wanting to come on. <laughs> um and in the meantime you're kinda just stuck listening to this. Uh As always, it's been a pleasure, and I will uh, see you next time. Thanks. What's going on, everyone? Uh, Welcome to another episode of Writing Friction. And as always, today's guest is uh, pretty cool. Everyone say hello to Janet Fitch. How are you, Janet? I am very well, thank you. Yeah, we we were uh, talking a little bit before about uh, before the podcast. We're digging the vibe behind you as opposed to the vibe behind me. <laughs> it's the minimal, the minimalist, and the maximalist. Most definitely, and uh, so you're in Los Angeles, right? Yeah. Were you born and raised there? I was. Really, what I part was. of LA? I lived. Uh, I left when I was seventeen. I moved up to uh, Oregon. Yeah. And I lived mostly all over the West and then came back to LA and, and here West I am. Coast your whole life? Yes. Okay. I've never lived East of the Mississippi. Okay. I'm a Jersey boy, but I moved to San Francisco about nine years ago. Uh, so I've been to LA a couple of times. I've been playing in bands my whole life. So that's kind of LA has always been a musical thing for me as opposed mm-hmm. to a literature thing for me. Oh. Um, I mean, growing up in L.A., I mean, you know, I feel like there's a couple of L.A. writers and like Brett Easton Ellis kind of comes to mind. Um, do you think that kind of shaped the way you wrote and what you wrote about? LA? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, but more on the Chandler end of things, Didion, Chandler, um, Nin. Uh, Anais Nin live right up the hill from where I live now, like two two streets up the hill. Uh-huh. Um, and so, yeah, Bukowski. I mean, it was, that was more the LA that I grew up in. Uh, oh. Eve Babbitts. Uh, Are you a Bukowski fan? You know, I like Bukowski. I, <laughs> I, you know, I like Miller. I like Bukowski. I like, you know, I like both the writers with a real finish to them and the writers who leave the seams. What do you mean by a finish? What do you mean by that? You know, I used to, when I was younger, I used to think, how could I write in a world where Melville wrote, you know, where, where these fabulous, elegant writers have written. And then I read um, Tropic of Cancer. Mm, It's like, oh, you know, there you go. I could, you know, I could do something like that or the beads, you know, you get, uh, it, when I was younger, it, it didn't occur to me that people wrote drafts. You know, that people <laughs> I don't think it occurs to a lot of people. Didn't look like that because I, uh, you know, I kind of had to wander around, find my way in the world. So, uh, you know, Miller gave me permission to write. Interesting. Um, yeah. In the sense of what what he was writing about, or the way, he, or how he wrote, how he wrote, uh-huh. he was very, uh, you know, he let the seams show. He, mm-hmm. he uh, um, inhabited his work in a different way than I had seen. And, and he was a guy who wrote about his surroundings. I mean, and funny, and you know, I mean, and 
allowed that the character of himself, which varied, uh, which I didn't realize at the time, of course, was very, his character was very different than he was. Mm-hmm. You know, he was actually kind of a, um, uh, a, uh, introverted person. Um, he was a serious person. He was a, um, you know, not the rollicking guy that he portrayed himself. Uh, do, you, I mean, do you find that, it, you know, meeting the authors that maybe you've met in your life, do you find that kind of dichotomy between the two? I mean, you don't have to throw any names out there, but, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, they say you should never meet your heroes. I'll tell you, you know, writers put the best of themselves into their work. Mm. And then life gets the rest of it. <laughs> And sometimes the rest of it is, isn't very pretty. Um, yeah. Everybody's had the experience of meeting their heroes and just like, I can't, I can't believe this is the person who wrote that beautiful book, you know, yeah. or those beautiful books. But it's because they put the best of themselves on the page. Uh, can, can we say that with Bukowski too? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything about Bukowski as a person. Yeah. Uh, I have a feeling that... Um, you know, it was a life that was, he had a, a joyous attitude towards mm-hmm. his yeah. very difficult life. Most so, definitely. you know, there's something to be said, but, you know, would we have been buddies? No. You know, <laughs> yeah, do I, I want to hang out with barfing up drunks? No. <laughs> he'd, be a, he'd be a hard dude to hang out with. Right. So, so, you're, uh, so did you start writing short stories did you have the idea that you wanted to be a long form novel when you i had no idea what i was doing literally so you kind of literally i was a a history major i hadn't written anything when i decided to become a writer i woke up on my 21st birthday and said that i was going to be a writer that's what I wanted to be with, with Anais Nin in my head, you know, that I was going to be, have these fabulous adventures and be very glamorous and have Henry Miller as a lover, you know, and that whole thing. Um, and then I had to learn to write. Uh-huh. So yeah, I started with short, with a short story and uh, discovered that I had some, I had some talent for certain aspects of writing, but there were certain aspects that I, I really uh, had to struggle and learn. You know, I think it's one of the reasons that I teach now a lot uh, because I had to make every mistake. I had to learn how to do a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I just knew that I wanted to, I was a tremendous reader. Well, that was going to be my next question. It, se- it seems to be, you can't just dot, it, it would be hard to wake up one day saying, I want to be a writer, having never written, but also not being a good reader. <laughs> I was, a tr- I read, when I was a kid, my reading was more real to me than the real world was. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't give a shit about the real world. Yeah. I wanted to live in that world. The You know, I could be a king. I could be a murderer. I could be whatever I wanted to be. You know, I was a big Dostoevsky fan. Mm, okay. Well, yeah, I was going to say reading up on you seems to be Russian. Really <laughs> part of your life also. Um, yeah, yeah. I had a conversation with Julia Phillips earlier today. 
And um, yeah, she lived in Siberia for I think four years. Oh, that is such a good book. Oh, oh yeah, you know, I, I, I talked to her earlier today. Yeah, she was she was gorgeous. Awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna oh. try to get her back on. She was super cool. I mean, you know, she literally hopped on a plane, went to Siberia, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then, that book was so well done. I yeah. was a uh, uh, my I was a history major, and Russian history was my. Um, specialty and Russian is my language. And I studied there uh, in, Len in Leningrad when it was still Leningrad yeah, yeah, and then yeah. went back uh, to do research for my, the Russian books. Okay. So, all right. So, so you're 21, you wake up, you have this idea, you want to be a writer. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, not, not to speak hyperbolically, but you know, it was the story in your mind. Did you wake up with a specific seed of an idea? No, but no, no. I, my life's path. Uh -huh. I, an exchange student in England in history, and I was doing Russian studies there. And um, I thought I was going to become an historian, but it didn't occur to me that my love of history actually was sort of a back way into writing fiction, mm -hmm. you know, because it's a it's char big character and the drama and you have to use language to bring the reader into the story and have them understand what all the biggest characters you can imagine. Mm. Um, and I woke up and realized I didn't want to become an historian. And, uh, you know, I wanted to live in my imagination as I generally did in those days um, anyway. And uh, then, yeah, so I had a certain idea of the kind of life I wanted to live, which was um, when I was a kid, I used to have, I had the worst teeth. I had those. Uh, you have great you know, teeth. This uh, kind of teeth. I, I said, you got my teeth. I had to go to the orthodontist during the school day. Yeah. And I, I my school was so Dickensian. It was like the worst crappy, you know, brick public school you can uh -huh. imagine you know everybody was mean it was it was it was dickens and i loved it in los angeles yeah yeah it was <laughs> and, uh, i used to get out of school during the day to go to my orthodontist mm. and to leave that prison and walk out into the morning sun and get on a bus when everybody was working and everybody was in school with those horrible teachers and be free and just walking around. I said, this is how I want it. This is my life. This is the way I want to be. Yeah. So it was a yearning for freedom as well as just a love of story. I mean, I lived in story. That's all I did was read and think and dream and, you know. So, yeah. So you start you start writing, you know, I, I'm going to build the scene in my head and, and fill in the blanks or correct me if I'm wrong. You start correcting these little short stories. Maybe you're working on a novel. At what point do you think I can Story. actually do this? I mean, was there, did you meet someone? Did, were oh, you, were from you the minute I decide. To people? Uh, from the minute I decide, this is an element of my character is that once I decide to do something, it is just it is fire on stone. Yeah. It is just going to happen one yeah. way or the other. So I started writing. I read little, you know, I took extension courses. I read things in magazines. I did everything wrong. That's why I, I do a, a weekly sort of fireside chat. Uh -huh. 
thing called writer. It's called Writing Wednesday. I do it on my Facebook page, the author page, every week. At awesome. Noon. Because I want to save other people from doing what I do. <laughs> Everything wrong. You know, they say, send to the places you read. So I was sending like my beginner three page short stories to the New Yorker, you know, to Vogue. It's like, <laughs> why didn't somebody tell me? <laughs> yeah. And people can't see me right now, but I'm pointing to myself. Yeah. But I didn't know. I was a type in why Portland, not? Oregon. I didn't know any writers. I didn't. Yeah. I was just picking up information as I went along. So I'm one of those, you know, if you ever watch Gattaca, you know, I'm one of those born in the wild, you know, uh, uh, people who didn't go through a program or anything. I just had to fail a lot. Do you, I mean, uh, this podcast, one of the big, I should have it painted on the back behind me. It should be failure. Um, And the idea of just, you know, a lot of authors I talked to, you know, they, they they took that first manuscript, they you know threw it in a you know they burned it, they got rid of it, you know all these things, all these things. Um, when you're working in those early days, I mean, you're, you're telling me that you're just the kind of you know you're spearheading it, you're you know you're gonna get this done, you're gonna get this done. Were you also getting you know joy out of it too? Was it a way to really? I mean, were there days where you know maybe oh, yeah. it wasn't flowing, but you still knew. You know, it was, you know, not every day is going to be sunshine and roses kind of thing. Most days were not sunshine and roses. Mm-hmm. And occasionally, I mean, this is, and the same thing now, all these years later. Yeah. You know, um, you're, there's always like a vague sense of nausea. And then, you know, when you're hitting it, because that lifts, it's like, oh, now I'm right. You know, um, but yeah, I... I wrote short stories that I sent out like every week, every week, every week. I had like, you know, 20 stories circulating, 30 yeah. stories circulating and rejections coming back every week, uh-huh. every, every week. And um, I had to, so it, it took me like 10 years to publish my first short story. It's mm. what it is. Uh-huh. You know, I had a party when I sold my first novel at a party and put all my rejections up on the walls of my living room and they reach from the baseboard to over my head on oh, all yeah. four walls of oh, my yeah. living room oh yeah be a nice so, wall at this point right so you know i'm a great hater so i get rejections and it just fuels me up it's like mm-hmm. oh, fuck you. Oh, well that's what it is <laughs> yeah, my, my first book got published you know, three weeks before the world ended, and everyone's sick of hearing about it. But you know, I got rejected by over 70 different agents. And it's like every. Oh, the agent thing. Well, I mean, again, we could yeah. do a whole episode on just that. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting thing. And you being in. Well, again, I'm learning, I'm new to the whole world. Um, it seems to be, you know, I'm from, I'm a Jersey kid. I grew up, you know, but it seems to be the book world is new, heavily New York based. Whereas you being an LA person, you know, people think agents entertainment is LA based, um, but it's not. But growing up, I mean, you grew up around show business, right? I mean, just kind of by nature or no? My father was an engineer. My mother worked for the city. Okay. Okay. I mean, never- I grew up, LA is a huge city. Well, of course, of course. Yeah. Everybody doesn't work in the entertainment industry. <laughs> you know, people have regular jobs and it's a regular place. It, it's, my aunts, uncles, grandma, you know, it's 
So that everything I was a big movie person. I mean, I would fake illness uh, on a regular basis to both my parents' work. So I would stare at a light bulb until my nose ran and my eyes ran. And, oh, I'm sick. I, can't uh-huh. I hated school so much. And I would sit home and I would watch movies all day long. Movies and read. And, you know, to me, that was paradise. So I was, the movies affected me, but as art, not as industry. Not as something you were surrounded by just by living there kind of thing. Yeah. No, it was, it was the stories. Oh, my God. Those movies made out of Tennessee Williams. Oh, plays. yeah. Oh, so in love with those. And, you know, just living in the movies. I love noir. A lot of been a lot of noir and i'm sort of a noir i have a streak of noir in in me and san francisco is wonderful for that well it's literally breathing with it so so then what was that next step then to having to deal with an agent um i was trying to get short stories written i took a short expensive hiatus in film school briefly for a semester and realized that I don't play well with others. Okay. I want to be God of my own planet. I just want it to be exactly the way I want it, which what the hell, you know? (laughs) So I had been writing short stories. I went back to short stories. um, And I was living in Colorado. I was the editor of a small town newspaper. I mean, really small. The circulation was 900. The town was a thousand in town, a thousand out in the country. Okay. That was my my paper. And I worked did it for two years and it was a twenty-four hour day job, you know, because people would call you at dinner and say, My kid just caught a big fish and I mm-hmm. want you to come over and take a picture of it for the paper. And you'd go over and you'd interview the kid. I mean, I could interview this pen. After having that job for two Definitely. years, yeah, um, I did everything. I did the gossip column. I did the police blotter. I did everything but sports because that was important. <laughs> I was some, a lot of gossip happening. Yeah, I went to the to the hairdressers. There were two beauty shops, and I just because I was not from there. Yeah, I went, I'd had to go in and say, "So what's happening? Oh, so and so is getting married, and you should go over call them and you know see what they're serving." And they told me how to do it basically. But after two years of that, I just couldn't. You know, I'd been writing already for 10, 10 years, more than that by that time, maybe around then, uh-huh. and. Uh, I quit and I wrote 18 short stories that next year. And uh, somebody I knew, my ex-husband or then-husband's boss, he was a DA, uh, left office to become a mystery writer full-time. Oh, wow. And he was the only writer I'd ever met. Yeah. So I said, can I, you know, would you read these stories? And he took the stories and said, would you mind sending, if I send these to my agent? I said, no, this is a tiny mountain town, tiny. Yeah. Do you mind if I send it as my agent? He sent it off to the agent. His The agent wrote to me, said, "I'm the this is not a short story collection. This is just a bunch of stories. Okay. <laughs> but if you ever have something I can represent, a novel, um, I would be happy to represent you. And he also suggested one or two of the short stories would make good 
a good novel. Interesting. So I wrote I wrote the first one and no sale. Wrote the second one and it circulated for like four years and finally did sell. Um, young adult. It just that was a five, that was a five year gap between finishing those roughly those two novels and then selling that first novel roughly. Um. Yeah. Okay. Uh. Yeah. Roughly, Rough, maybe yeah, a little, yeah. maybe less, but it was it's important. People need to hear this. People think it happens overnight. It was young so. adult, which is, I wrote it because he thought I could sell it, yeah. which I did, but yeah. it wasn't what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um. By that time, I had moved back to Los Angeles, um, and just kept writing the short stories and getting better, getting better learning the craft, learning the art, you know. Um, I got a rejection from one of the, my 400 rejections uh, saying, good enough story, but what's unique about your sentences? <laughs> I go, my sentences? What? Oh, God, what does that mean? What, I'm a history major. What does that even mean? Yeah. And then I realized it was like those like those movies where they climb to the top of the foothills and they're like, we, you know, they climb to the top of the mountain. It's like, we're, I've made it to the Himalayas, you know, I made it. And then they look up and then they see the, the, the real peaks that they haven't, they just got to the foothills. Mm -hmm. That's, that was that moment for me. It was like, Oh my God, the things that I know how to do character plot kind of stuff. And, you know, I have not even started the big climb. I had to learn how to make beauty on the page. You know, one word up against another word. You know, to have some music and some beauty and something that makes the reader want to linger as well as wanting to move forward. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the best thing. So I had to learn to write. I had to learn everything. Again, the theme seems to be rejection, and it's the idea. <laughs> well, no, in, in, in the best in the best way possible. Yeah, you know, but again, it's the kind of person who f can take that rejection and you know get hungry, hungrier from it. It feeds yeah. you. It feeds whatever's inside of you, or you're going to keep rage. It feeds yeah, whatever it is. You know, like, yeah, you. Know, you I'll show you, you son of a bitch. Exactly. Like you know, fuck you. You know, I mean, like, you get these these sentences, and it's just you know. But that's but that guy. I knew he was giving me the keys to the kingdom mm. when he said, "What's unique about your senses?" Like I didn't even understand what that meant. It took me like six weeks to figure it out. Mm -hmm. But he gave me. You know, he gave me the golden key. Uh, usually they reject you. They don't tell you anything. They yep. just does not meet our needs at this time. Mm -hmm. you know, or, this or another agent would love this. <laughs> yeah, this guy said, you have, you know, your sentences are not interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And did it take, a, it just took a lot of soul searching to kind of just figure out what it is you thought he meant by that. Oh my God. Well, I just couldn't. You know, it was like scrying chicken entrails. It was like, yeah. I know there's something here. He's trying to tell me what. what. So, um, and I realized I needed to work. I needed the poetics. I needed poetry. So I started working with a teacher who was teaching fiction, but she was a poet. And 
the, the things she didn't have, I already had. Mm -hmm. So I didn't care whether, like, she didn't care about plot. She didn't care about whether anything happened, <laughs> you know, she, but she sure cared about a beautiful line yeah. and uh, really sharp dialogue and, you know, um, all the things I needed. So I, you know, I had to learn my craft. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm a reader before I'm a writer. And, you know, there are times where I want to dive into, you know, some heavy dude, you know, I'm a big John Updike fan, um, you know, and, you know, that's some dense material. You know, I've been trying to get through to some Saul Bellow, but even that's a little dense for me. But there are times where, and I, it's only been recently, I've kind of allowed myself my father would call it airport reading. Um, but, you know, just and you're shaking your head, you know, and talk. but like, you know, every now and then there's so, there's something to be said about just like, you know, he walked into the bank, he pulled out a gun, he said this is a robbery, you know, and there's things like that, too. But it's interesting to hear how you wanted to and you were told that you needed to, you know, or you felt the the need to be more poetic with your words and your sentences. and your. I words. needed to have language as yeah. well as story. You know, when I was in college, there was a political science teacher named Stephen Kapsch, and he had something called the Kapsch Continuum, and it was a vector. So it was a solid dot on one end and an arrow on the other. And so there was a solid dot and then this arrow that went up, and it was the line between duty and aspiration. <laughs> and duty is a, you know, there's just a solid dot there. And then it goes as high as you want. And in any art form, you know, you can do the, the dute, you know, you can do the dute, you know, and he walked into a room and he pulled out the gun, blah, blah. But there's no end to how good it can be. Oh, for sure. So yeah. My aspiration, my ambition is up that, up that vector. I'm going. I yeah. That's what I want to read. That's what I want to do. Um, Why not go for the best in everything? I mean, like you said, well, you like a bag early. of Doritos is fine, but it's not very nourishing. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I can make you a beautiful four course meal, you know, why would I bring you Doritos and bean dip, you know, in a can? Yeah. And it's all, there's also something to be said for the people who are satisfied by a bag of Doritos and, be, yeah, because yeah. they they have not had a loving, beautiful, four course meal exactly for them. Um, so so obviously you know you find huge success obviously with your book White Oleander. After that you know and this is not going to turn into an interview about that. But what do you do as someone as an author who I don't know if that success was kind of out of the blue. I I, I don't know enough of the story behind it. You're shaking your head yes. So yeah. what do you do after that success to just you crash and burn, of course. Of course, you know, because you think you have to do bigger, better, and then you completely get fucked up. Uh -huh. uh, you feel like an utter failure. You feel like an imposter. Uh, I was, I got my, my editor sent a photographer to take author picture for the, a book that I couldn't write a complete and utter mess. Three years, I was lying to everybody. How's it going? Great. Oh, it's fabulous. You know, 
I was, I had rented an off uh, a studio thinking I could, maybe I would do better if I was the studio. I would just go and sleep. I would sleep there. I would come home and I would sleep here. Uh, I was also having some marital problems. Uh -huh. <clears throat> so it was a really dark time for me. Three years, I'd taken two runs at this enormous historical novel and uh, complete failure, lying, you know. And finally, I had to, I, I confessed to my editor. He, he had his, his assistant call me and say, can you just tell us the name of the book so we can put it into the schedule? And I burst into tears and I said, I can't talk to you about it. Can you please put him on the phone? And uh, she did. And, and I said, there is no book. It is a 900-page mess. And I have started something else that is just three people, and one of them's dead, and it's a novel about suicide in punk rock L.A. Um, and he says, is it going? I said, yeah, it's <laughs> finally going. And he says, pack up that other book and just send the whole thing to me. Get it out of your writing space. Yeah. And so that's why Paint It Black is such a dark book, the second book, the, the punk rock book. Yeah. Um, is because that's came out of the white oleander experience yeah um well and behind your other your shoulder people can see you have another book again talking about going forward um so you write painted black and again are you looking in your rearview mirror at that point or is it, it now you just gotta you gotta push forward push forward and just kind of no it was like oh i remember how to write well i know okay. how to do this yeah well this is pretty good yeah you know and then i got my legs under me again and once that, the second novel is a very difficult book, mm -hmm. always, especially if you have a successful first book. Well, it's you it's know. game music, the sophomore slump. That's right. Well, it's like you, the first album took you all your life you had to, to write all, life to all those songs. And then they want the next one in a year. Oh, you know, so they force it. And then it's crappy, and then that's the end. While you're touring for the other record. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, then I ended up writing a big historical novel, yeah. the, a character left over from that disaster. I just couldn't get her out of my mind. And it ended up being the Marina uh, Makarova, the uh, the revolution of M Marina M and then the new one is chimes of the lost cathedral. We so love it. This is her. And it was only 12 years for the two books. So, but I learned, there's a wonderful quote from Dorothy, Al the writer, Dorothy Allison, the novelist, uh, that fiction never exceeds the writer's courage. So I thought, if you just don't fall off, you take the horse's mane and you wrap it around your hand and you just cling on. It doesn't have to be beautiful, you know, at least the first wrap. Um, it does have to be beautiful, of course, but mainly you don't fall off just because you're afraid. Yeah. I mean, there were times in there, year eight, it's like, I'm going to be writing this for the rest of my life. This is going to destroy me. It's going to destroy my career. I'm never, ever going to finish this. But I stayed on it, and I got the, we had this, you know, first draft that was both books. And it's like, I kept telling my editor, this is getting really long. 
and she said, um, finish the whole shape of it and we will figure out how to publish it. And so I got the big shape and then she sa I said, I'd like to do this as three books. She said, I see this as two books. It seems to clearly divide into a coming of age novel and then a, a woman who has come of age dealing with the effects of her choices. So it divided in half and then I finished the first one, The Revolution of Marina M, about the Russian Revolution. And then the second one finishes the revolution. Uh, my character's a poet. So originally the idea was to do the whole book in verse. The first 17 chapters were in verse. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> the problem is that I got into some areas on the book that I needed to um, use all my tools as a fiction writer because I didn't know what would happen. Uh, the poetry is fine if you know what's going to happen in the scene, but if you don't, you have to live through it with the characters. And then I was writing prose. So, um, but I did write all the poetry in the book. There's a lot of it. Uh, I wrote all the fictional, her poetry and, and her circle of poets, but also I got original translations of some of the, real poets who are also characters in the book, you know, Vladimir Mayakovsky and Anna Khmatova. Uh, these are real people in the book. And I have a friend who's a translator who did original translations of those poems for me. We love it. So, well, uh, Zoom's, Zoom's giving me the red light. Janet, okay. this, was a, this was a blast. I feel like we could talk for at least another hour. Of course um, we can. Maybe you again. Know, before, and, uh, what was the name of the new book so people can know, hear about the it? The new book is called Chimes of a Lost Cathedral. Perfect. And that's uh, off of a Russian legend about the drowned city of Kitej. Uh, that the faithful can hear the bells from under the lake. So Janet, thank you so much sorry. for spending time talking to me. Very, very... Very, well, uh, quite a pleasure. So yeah, no, we'll do it again for sure. Sure, and Absolutely. please enjoy that. And please enjoy the Los Angeles weather. That's what it's for. Henry Miller's birthday. All right, see you later. See ya. Bye. Bye.